in the 1969 episode. Carlton are in the news for many different reasons. Brawls, goals, sideburns. Waverley Park is nearing completion. Tassie Johnson achieves a first. Richmond stumble and consider Tom Hafey's position at the club. Norm Smith is back and the umpires threaten to strike. All this and more coming up after the song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules of Football History podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league. We've got no qualifications, but we have a thirst for knowledge and a desire to relive some glory days. Although not if you're a Demon supporter, because your glory days are now. <laughs> um, I have Charlie and Kazman here with me. Oh, hello, hello. Hello, thank you for listening. And we're listening, you are listening to the 1969 episode, our last episode for this year that we'll be focusing on, the year we'll be focusing on. Yeah. Yep. We're finishing the year with the finish of a decade. Yes, indeed. Yes. Um, hello to listeners in Sweden, Poland, Israel, uh, and the US state. Oh, Israel as well. I said that. Yes. Um, and the US states of New Jersey, Nevada, and Missouri. Ah, oh, fantastic. We're really spreading. We're really aren't spreading, we? yeah. We're really trying to cover those states as well. There's not many. We I think Alaska we're still waiting for. Um, all right, so let's get to some news. The hit song for 1969, Charlie. Yes. I've gone The Real Thing by Russell Morris. Oh, yeah, classic. That was number one in Australia for two weeks in 1969, Casman. Wow, fantastic. I'm surprised it was only two weeks, but there you go. When you're competing against the Beatles and the Stones. Yeah, you're in a best drive. Yeah, yeah, it's all happening. Yes. So I'm going to try and do as many Aussie ones from now on as possible. Yeah. Uh, so let's start nice and early in, uh, in 1969 with the 2nd of January when Australian media baron Rupert Murdoch purchased the largest selling British Sunday newspaper, The News of the World. Things went pretty well for quite a while and then all fell apart. Oh, yeah. On the 20th of January we had Richard Nixon sworn in as the 37th President of the United States. On the 4th of May in repeat of the uh, previous season's hockey finals. The Montreal Canadiens defeated the St. Louis Blues four games to none to win that fantastic Stanley Cup. Uh, on the 17th of June, we had Boris Spassky defeating Tigran Petrosian to become the world chess champion in Moscow after a 23-game match. Whoa, checkmate. Mm. On the 20th of July, we had some big news. At 3:17 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, as in, in America, we had Apollo 11's lunar module Eagle landing on the moon's surface. An estimated 650 million people worldwide watched this—the largest television audience for a live broadcast at that time—watched uh, as Neil Armstrong take, took his first historic steps on the surface of the moon. Massive. And on the same day. Uh, Belgian Eddie Merckx won the Tour de France for the first time. <laughs> Slightly less big news, although if you're into cycling, maybe you're up there. Uh, on the 8th of August, we had the Beatles um, photographer Ian McMillan taking the very famous photo on a zebra crossing. On Abbey Road. 
This is so, it's just such an era, and that, isn't it? And there's that documentary at the moment about the Beatles. Yes, yes, get back. Get back. Yeah. Uh, and then, just after this, on the 15th to the 18th, we had the Woodstock Festival. Oh. <laughs> near White Lake, New York, featuring some of the top rock musicians of the era. <laughs> on the 2nd of October, we had Rod Laver defeating fellow Australian Tony Roche in the men's singles final of the US Open, which achieved his second Grand Slam. Because he'd also won the Australian Open, the French, and Wimbledon that year. So Rocket Rod, <laughs> going strong. Yeah. On the 25th of October, we had the election, the 1969 federal election, where John Gorton's Liberal Country Coalition government was re-elected, uh, defeating a resurgent Labor Party led by Gough Whitlam. He'll have a turn. Yes. And then on the 29th of October, we had the very first message ever sent over ARPANET. The forerunner event. Wow. Because I believe it was a meme. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what it was. No, and then on the 16th of December, we had John Gordon announcing a withdrawal of Australian Army troops from the Vietnam War will begin in early 1970. So we're, we're at the end of that era, or beginning the end of that era. And the second message back was who dis? <laughs> yeah, new phone, who dis? <laughs> uh, would you like to hear about some people who were born? Please. Mm. Um, Australians, of course. We've got Luke Longley, ah. the basketball player, on the 19th of January. Now, that's a, that's a documentary you should check yeah. out yeah, on yeah. ABC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch that. Tony Modra on the 3rd of March. Modra. Kate Blanchett on the 14th of May. Bernard Fanning on the 15th of August. Ah, Queenslanders. Shane Warne on the 13th of September. And Costa Zoo on the 19th of Whoa. September. Great Australians, one and all. Hmm. All right, Charlie, let's uh, get stuck into some league news for 1969. And I know you want to know all about VFL slash Waverley Park. I do. What's happening? So, 1969, the terracing to encircle the arena has formed and laid 15 miles in all of solid concrete. The first foundations were also laid for the building of stands. October 1969, the roofing of the KG Luke stand. Place. Oh, the Kenneth Luke stand. Yeah. There we go. Is that okay. the one that's still there? There's one that's still there. Must be. Yeah. Um, the other thing was the VFL announced that as the as Waverley would be available for 1970, they'd be extending the season from 21 to 22 rounds. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, uh, other news. The VFL introduced a new rule awarding a free kick against a player if you kick the ball out of bounds on the full. Oh, so we're back to that. We're back to this, um, which is going to see scoring go through the roof as it was in the 30s when we had too many goals yes um, always a big problem but the VFL were reprimanded for introducing this rule because they didn't get approval from the ANFC but there was no penalty so the AF, AFN, ANFC eventually followed suit and they were pretty happy that. with the rule but it was more like you haven't gone about it the right yeah, way obviously yeah, yeah. Uh, even though you have all the power we're supposed to look like we have the power <laughs> yeah. yeah similar to now yeah. right yeah um Another news, a VFL, the VFL called a special meeting to discuss a proposed game between Richmond and Footscray to play round nine on a Sunday, their game. Ooh. Yeah. Um, but several clubs disagreed with this and it was eventually rejected. Yeah, only Footscray, Richmond, Collingwood and Carlton and Hawthorne voted yes, falling short of the required nine clubs for yes folks. That'd be three quarters. Yeah, so it's more like tradition stands. Yep. Yeah, at this yep. stage. Yep. Yeah, um, attendance was also an issue in 1969, falling away from the previous season. League administrative director um, called on the press not to be so negative about the game, and the league um, 
the league being who they are, they banned cheer squads from using floggers and confetti in 1969. So the cheer squads went on strike at one stage as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charlie. I know you don't want to, but let's start at the bottom of the ladder and work our way up. Melbourne in 12th. That's right. Three wins, 17 horrible losses, 83.1%. So, uh, coached by uh, Johnny Beckwith, the, uh, pre- the, the premiership captain of a few, just a few years ago, and ca- uh, captain this year, taking over from Hasselman, we've got... Yes. Um, all right. Some deb- and actually, I should preface this by saying we haven't got a lot of good stuff to say about Melbourne. Mm. I know we've been talking a lot about them recently, and, yes. and, and we've had quite extensive bits. This not so much. <laughs> no. Um, some debutants. We've got Mark Mitchell and Greg Wells. Gregory P. Wells, uh, Melbourne, two hundred and twenty-four games. Carlton, forty-three games. And the blonde rover Senderman came from Bentley McKinnon. So it actually took Melbourne until round eight to win their first game, which was a game against Fitzroy at Princes Park. Melbourne were masterful with their fast play on football, and while they never shook the Lions until the last quarter, they were well in charge from quarter time onwards to register their first victory. Blair Campbell kicking three. No idea who he is. Great. Um, some good news. during So following round eight, they played a exhibition game against Collingwood in Sydney. And thumped them. Absolutely thumped Collingwood. Oh, so, well, that's good. I gave them a bit of a, a booster, a bit of confidence. Riding high on this confidence, they took on the Doggies, who were rather inaccurate and fell away early. And the Demons then conceded nine goals in the second quarter to fall behind. <sighs> Entering the last quarter, the Dogs still, by led, still led by over four goals before the Demons manufactured a barnstorming comeback to run over the top of the Bulldogs and win comfortably. Blair Campbell booted three of his four goals in the final term avalanche. Big Blair. Big Blair. So I think maybe we'll get to know him a bit more. I'm sure we will. Um, round 18, I'm, I'm skipping ahead to their third win. <laughs> uh, this is on a day when Tassie Johnson became the first Tasmanian to register 200 Victorian Football League games. Really? Yep. It's taken that long. Yep. That's pretty impressive. Yep. The Demons caused the upset of the season by knocking over the top of the table Blues in a thriller. Greg Wells made a sensational debut for Melbourne in round 18. The blonde-haired teenager kicked four goals to help the Demons over the line by seven points after scores were level at three-quarter time. The Dees kicked five last-quarter goals to prevail 99-92. to Sorry, the win over Carlton gave them hope of avoiding the wooden spoon, but to no avail, they lost their last two games. Not much hope. I mean, everything would have had to go their way for them not to win the wooden spoon, as we'll find out when we talk about who, <coughs> who finished 11. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Not a great year from the Demons. No, the first of many. Not many great years. Points. And lots of... It's interesting in these times because you hear about these players who you just... All these names that you Blair just... Blair Campbell. Yeah, exactly. And that's the sign, isn't it? Of when, you, when you're not hearing familiar names, you know your club's probably not in a great space. Would he be the first player named Blair as well? Blair. Blair. Maybe. Maybe. Um... So, 1969 gives us John Townsend as the Keith Bluey Truscott Memorial uh, Best and Fairest winner. And our lead goal kicker, not Blair Campbell. Oh. Another person I don't know too much about, I'm sorry to say. Ross Dillon. Uh, uh, yeah, Ross Dillon with 48 goals. Okay. Yeah, That's actually a pretty good hole. It's not bad. Yeah. 
In 11th place, Footscray with 6 wins and 14 losses, 85.5% for them. Again, of course, captain coach by Mr. Football, Teddy Witten. Indeed, so, so I've got some great debutants here as well. Oh, okay, great. Richard Razaminski, Bruce Greenhill, Jeff Thatcher, Harry Scredger, Robbie Bones McGee, <laughs> great. Uh, Tad Joniak, and two absolute legends who will both go on to win a joint Brownlow for different teams, Bernie Quinlan and Barry Round. Oh, yeah. You always forget that Bernie Quinlan was a Footscray player yeah. first. Because I only know him as a Fitzroy player. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but he started with the dogs. With the doggies, okay. Okay, Bernie Quinlan, uh, Footscray, 177 games. Fitzroy, 189 games with many goals as well. A superb footballer with great skills in every part of the game. Barry Digger Round. Uh, Footscray, 136 goals. Um, South or Sydney, um, 157 goals. And um, Footscray recruited round from Warrigal and although he played many fine games for the Bulldogs, he always had a ruckman ahead of him and uh, many other <laughs> many other great things about Barry Digger round. Um, Gary Dempsey actually made had a delayed start to this season after suffering burns in a bushfire he helped fight at Lara. Yeah. Now, if you remember last year, Charlie 68, Ted Whitten was supposed to play his 300th game in the last round. That's right, Only yes. to discover that uh, he'd actually. only played 298. <laughs> so round one was his 300th game finally um, against Fitzroy. They had a big win in this day. They kick-started the day by kicking six goals, eight, um, and finished the day with George Bissett kicking six and Ricky Spargo five. Ted Whitten said after the game, the way the young Footscray side played together showed courage and dedication. It was the biggest thrill as my 300th game, playing for Victoria and the winning of the All-Australian Blazer. Also following this win, Ted Whitten received $300 towards his Provident Fund from supporters. Kevin Murray presented him with a silver tankard and Carlton sent a pair of silver cufflinks. Nice. Yeah. Bit of uh, cross-club respect there. Yeah. I like that. And I think he's only third or fourth player to play 300 games. Gordon Coventry, Dick Reynolds, and yeah. him. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, Then, after this first round win, it was a seven-game losing streak for the Dogs. <laughs> Finally broken in round nine with an impressive 11-point win over Richmond, led by David Thorpe with 38 disposals and Don McKenzie's three goals. They came from behind to snatch the wind. <laughs> then, Bissett was at it, George Bissett was in at it again in round 11 with another seven goals and a win over North Melbourne. Thorpe again starring with 37 disposals. Round 12, Bernie Quinlan, Quinlan and George Bissett kicked four goals each in a game over Fitzroy in what was a very even team performance against the Lions, which they won by 47. In round 14, Footscray were playing Carlton at Prince's Park. George Bissett kicked six goals in the losing score, and the scribes of the day said he was best on ground or close to it. But Bissett is also reported for striking Ian Robertson. Mm. A couple of days later, he beats the charge at the tribunal, but the damage had probably been done. Field umpire Peter Matheson made the report and Bissett believes that because his number was taken, he wouldn't have received any Brownlow votes for that game. Uh-huh. And if you look at the final Brownlow results... Isn't it? Yeah. He, Very, was, yeah. he was by what, one? One. Yeah. One. In those days, the league did not divulge the games in which players received their votes. Oh, really? But it was generally taken that a reported player had breached the fairest part of a Brownlow code. Yes, of course. And not, and so they wouldn't have given it to him. Mm, and so he's always... So in that game, that one he was reported, I've got the stat... Do you have the stats there of what he no. did? So he had more... They say they reckon he had more than 30 disposals and kicked six goals. Yeah. So... 
That's Bobby Skilton numbers. Well, surely you're getting a vote for a game like that, yeah. right? Yep. So, yeah, could have, it must have cost him a Brownlow. Yeah. Yep. Round 15, they beat the Hawks, Quinlan and Bissett again the Stars. On the 27th of July, 1969, Ted Whitten turned 36. So the round 16 football team of 20 contained 10 players who hadn't even been born when Whitten played his first game with the Dogs <laughs> in 1951. And round 19, their final win was a come-from-behind triumph over the Bombers. They trailed by 13 at three-quarter time, but five goals to one in the last quarter gave the Dogs their final win of the season. Nice. So we had uh, winning the 1969 Charlie Sutton medal was, of course, George Bissett. Yeah. Um, did he and, win the leading goal kicker as well? And he did win the leading goal kicker with 45. So we talk, We are talking, um, uh, yeah, I mean, an unbelievable year from the man. I mean, not to take anything away from who eventually does win the Brownlow. Brown yes. We didn't mention that, did we? No, we didn't, no. Good, good. Um, yeah, no, of course not. <laughs> and you can only, you know, it's, it's, it is a, it's always been a judgment thing, right? Of course. If, if, if it's if always you just, contentious. If you just went on stats, you, yeah, so. Yeah. Always interesting. Yeah. But there we go. Bob Skilton would have nine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> In 10th place, Fitzroy with 7 wins, 13 losses. Their percentage, 100, excuse me, 82.4. Yeah. Uh, this year, coached again by Bill Stephen and captained again by Kevin Murray. So a bit of consistency down there. Yeah, club, that which is good for him. But right. it doesn't seem like it's doing all the great things. Some debutantes. We've got Bruce Baker, Bill Sykes, Peter Waitman, Robert Ireland, and Shane Malloy, father of Jared Malloy. There you go. Um, now, the Lions had a great first win in round two against the Swans. Doug Searle was again great in attack, kicking eight goals from 12 shots. They then struggled through 10 straight losses. Although across that stretch, Kevin Murray was his consistent self, his disposal count dipping below 20 only once in the whole season. Um, round nine is an interesting one. So their score in that game, they lost to Geelong. Their score was nine, six goals, nine forty-five, which was the record high for the lowest score. Yeah. So it's the highest lowest score there's been up to this point. Yeah. So yeah, no, no one, no club has scored a low score of more than forty-five. Correct. Up to this point. Up to this point. Yeah. It's very the highest, confusing. The highest it, lowest score so far. Yeah. Of any season. Fitzroy were able to steady the ship across the second half of the season, winning six of their last eight. This started with the return bout against the Swans at Prince's Park. Searle kicking five goals six in a 49-point win. Kevin Murray played a big game and was chaired from the ground. They had solid wins over the Saints by 16, North by 30, and a nine-point win over Richmond, and holding Richmond to only one goal in the opening half. So... Richmond, a pretty big playing team yeah. at this stage. They won their final two games of the season, beating the Ds by two points in a close game. Norm Dare kicking the winner in this game with the, when, in the dying minutes, he began a blistering 60-metre dash along the outer wing, capped off with a goal from a great angle to put the Lions ahead. They then beat the finals-bound Cats in the last round with John Murphy really leading the Lions. They then beat the finals-bound Cats in the final round. I said final twice. That's right, though. I know it's, I know it's right. It just doesn't sound good. In the last round? They then beat the finals-bound Cats in the last round with John Murphy really leading the way. Lions home by 23 points. To uh, keep themselves out of the second-last spot there. Yes. Yeah. Probably finishing higher than you would have expected from this poor season. Yeah, it sounds... The yeah, second sounds half of the great. season. So, um, this 
uh, year. Our lead goal kicker down at Fitzroy was uh, Doug Searle with 68. Yeah. Very good for a, from a low team. Yeah. And the Mitchell medal winner was Kevin Murray with his ninth best and fairest. Unbelievable. Pretty bloody impressive. His ninth and last. Spoilers. I should say. Spoilers. Spoilers <laughs> for us. In ninth place, South Melbourne with seven wins, 13 losses, same as Fitzroy. Their percentage um, only a tenth higher than Fitzroy, 82.5. 0.1% higher than Fitzroy. Uh, but big news down at Lakeside Oval. Yeah, they got a new coach. They've got a new coach. We'll get to that in a sec. Okay, yeah, so co- yeah, so coached by a great man. I won't put away who tell you who it is. Uh, and also a captain, new captain this year, taking over um, from Bobby Skilton. Well, there's a reason for that, and we'll get yes. to that shortly as well. So we've got a John Rantel. Yes. Yes. Some debutants for South Melbourne were John Petura, Bob Svornich. We've got some debutants. <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> this is too good. All right, we've got some debutants. We've got John Petura, Bob Sforinovich, Ken Luscombe, Ruben Cooper, and a new recruit, Alan Richardson, father of Matthew Richardson. Ah. I never realised he, he... I only thought he ever played for Richmond. Richmond, yeah. Okay, so Charlie, let's get stuck into this quickly. Yes. So their ex-coach Miller had been axed at the end of the 68 season. And Secretary Noel Brady was told to go and just go and ask Norm Smith his opinion about who they should get as next coach. They didn't know Norm Smith at all, but they thought, you know, he's a great football mind. Let's just go oh, and so ask him. So there was no sort of in... No. Ah, no. interesting. Okay. Um, but within hours, Norm Smith let it kind of be known that he, he would be interested. There. And the secretary called up the president. He's like, I think Norm Smith I will mean, coach us. What a guess. And so the president went round as well, and he was hired on the spot. That's, uh, well, of course. Part of the stipulation was that Ian Thorogood was the assistant coach, Clyde Laidlaw would coach the seconds, and Donnie Williams coached the thirds. So he's getting the people he wants involved. Yep. Yeah. And he's you know taking that control he likes. Yeah. Um, so he was ready to shake things up. Um, there's a, a story where he, when he was introduced, Bob Skilton was like two minutes late, and Norm Smith let it be known that that would be the last time he'd ever be late <laughs> again. Um, but speaking of Bob Skilton, he had a serious Achilles tendon injury in a preseason game against Port Adelaide the week before the season started, which would keep him out for the whole season. We, we, we know what Achilles are like. And three-time Brownlow medalist, so yeah. this is just devastating. Um, so, John Rantel, as you said, was named captain. Yes. Um, so, round six it took for, North, for South Melbourne to win their first game. Which was against the Swans. They beat the Saints by 37 points. The youthful Swans reduced the Saints to a mediocre side as they raced away for their first win. Um, Then they made it back-to-back wins with an eight-point win over the Doggies the following week. Nice. Round nine was a big game. It was Norm's first one against his old side, Melbourne. The first time he's actually coached against them since round 14, 1951. Yeah, of course, when he was over at Fitzroy. Indeed. The Swans were revved up and kicked eight goals, one in the first quarter to the Demons, three goals, five. Swans eventually running out 25-point winners. And you can imagine he would have got them really pumped up for the yeah, start of that. And they yeah. want to do it for, for him. John Suttolts kicked six. Hayden McAuliffe had 34 disposals. Steve Holman kicked 30. Steve Holman had 33 disposals. 
Round 12, the Swans won by three points over the Roos in a round 12 match, trailing by four points at the final change. The Roos had the advantage of the wind, but the persistent Swans attack held a slight edge. New recruit John Petura kicked a freak 60-meter goal against the wind to give the Swans the lead and eventually the win. The Swans won three of their last four, including a 32-point win over the Saints, the Dogs by 17, and a final round win over the Demons again. The Swans' end-of-season report read, A great deal of work still remains to be done, and our ultimate goal can only be achieved by all associated with the club, contributing to the best of his ability without any thought of reward, apart from success that will belong to the South Melbourne Football Club. Nice. So not a not a terrible year from South, from South getting there. Well, missing Bobby Skilton and still uh, getting to finishing ninth is not too bad. No, nah, considering they've basically been totally reliant on him over the last. Yeah, few probably not years. bad for them to have a year off. I mean, see what it's going to be like. Yeah, other players. Because he's not far off the end anyway. Let's see how other players can stand up. Yeah. So we've got uh, lead goal kicker was John Suttles with 35. And the Bobby Skilton medal this year went to Peter Bedford. Lovely. Yeah. Okay, guys. North Melbourne with eight wins and 12 losses. Their percentage, 87.5. Yes. So, so North Melbourne uh, this year coached by Keith McKenzie again, captained by Johnny Duckdale again. So uh, staying consistent. Yes, they are. Um, I mean, they're consistently bad as well, aren't they, <laughs> yeah. really? <laughs> okay, so, so debutants, we've got John, John Duffy, Dick Ivey, and Frank DiMartino has come across from, Fitz, from Richmond. Ah, yes, okay. Oh. Also, 1969 was the 100th year of the club, founded in 1869. Oh, yes. They had a bit of a centenary ball and a celebration. And just aren't they thriving? Hmm, not in the VFL. They are. VFA, they did. Um, so, pre-season... Jeff Bryant of VFA club Box Hill was cleared to North Melbourne and under a rule that the VFA had introduced in 1967, a transfer fee of $2,000 was set for his clearance. But under the Coulter law, VFL clubs were forbidden from paying any sort of transfer fee. Ah, uh, yes. The VFA formally approved Bryant's clearance and it initially appeared that it had done so without the transfer fee being paid. But then VFA secretary Fred Hill reported that the North Melbourne club had secretly transferred it. Oh, under, mm, the, under table the table sort of stuff. And in fact, Box Hill President Reg Scheinberg claimed that claimed to have received a free in cash under cover of darkness from a man he did not know. <laughs> My gosh, this is... I can't believe we've just found the one and only time that a football club has been a bit dodgy <laughs> with their cash. <laughs> North Melbourne was required to face the VFL arbitrators over the allegations, but charges were dropped when the VFA couldn't provide any solid corroborating evidence. So whether it happened or not, yeah, who, who knows? knows? I mean, it did. No. <laughs> it definitely did. <laughs> All right, season kicked off well with four straight wins. Started in round one with a win over the Swans. Farron and Sam Kekovic, Slam and Sam kicking four each, and Johnny Dugdale starring. Round two, it was the Farrant and Dugdale show again. Farrant was six this time, Kaz. Dugdale, 35 posies and a win over the Ds at the MCG. Round three, they actually made it back-to-back wins at the G, beating the Tigers. Kekovic had 27 disposals, kicked six goals, three. Dugdale kicked two crucial goals in time on. The first was his 400th goal, and his next sealed a nine-point win over the Tigers. Um, so North Melbourne's round four win over the Lions put them top of the ladder for the first time since round one, 1956. Oh, and Slam and Sam Kekovic was the toast of the football world, starring in all four wins over their... The, starring in all four of their wins. But then, round five, they thumped back to earth, losing to their arch rivals, the Bombers, Kekovic suffering a severe ankle injury which affected the rest of his season. 
Round seven, though, they managed a hard-fought win over the Cats at Cardinia by eight points, their first win there since 1959. Round eight, they beat the Saints at Arden Street, Allison kicking five goals three, but from then on it was slim pickings, and the Roos would only win two of their remaining 12 games. Those two being round 13, which was a three-point thriller over the Demons. Kekovic kind of back to his best there, kicking six goals six. And round 16, they got revenge on the Bombers by 27 points. Bernie McKenzie, the star, with 31 disposals and four goals. Um, the club's social club, the Harold Henderson Pavilion, was opened on August 5th, and the team took home, this is something I found, the WD and HO Wills Most Improved Team Award for the best, most improved team, but I cannot find any mention of this anywhere else apart from 1969. No. Um, so, yeah, they, they... Was it just an internal one that they gave to mate, themselves? Hey, you, fi- yeah. you moved up. Because of the pavilion. Because they finished 12th last season, now they're 8th. I mean, hey. Most improved. Uh, yeah. Well done. Well done, yeah. North Melbourne. Oh, yeah. So, Slam and Sam uh, won the uh, goal kicking, of course, with 56 this year, and he also took home the Sid Barker medal. So, the form didn't fall off too much after his ankle injury, Tim. No, but he wasn't the same. No. Yep. St. Kilda in seventh place, nine wins, 11 losses. Their percentage, 103.2, Charlie. Sprinkling dust, just to be mediocre enough to play <laughs> That's right. So, 1969, of course still coached by uh, Alan Jeans and captained again. Oh, oh no. Captain for Cap- the first time. Yes, captain for the first time, Ian Stewart. Yeah. Taking yeah. over from Doc. Yeah, oh. another, another, one Tasmanian to another. Yes. Yeah. Um, some debutants, we've got Barry Lawrence and Colin Antoine. I believe it's pronounced. Um, after a close loss to, to Carlton in round one, the Saints earned their first win of the season the following week, which was a 33-point win over the Dogs, led by Cowboy Neal's seven goals four. Barry Breen then added seven of his own the next week in a win over the Lions, while Ross Smith dominated in the middle. Round four saw the return of Carl Ditterich for the season, although he couldn't spark the Saints at all as they lost to the Cats. And to add to this sadness, um, Ditterich was attacked by a supporter leaving the field, and then in retaliation he snapped the tendon in his hand, which put him out for eight weeks. You're kidding. <laughs> yeah. In round five, they played an interesting game against the Pies at Moorabbin Oval. In the final minutes, ruck rover Barry Pascoe was knocked unconscious, um, and winger Stuart Trott had the ball taken from him on the wing for time-wasting, but they still managed to hold on for a goal. We're hearing a bit more about this time-wasting rule, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. Umpires are enjoying Have you ever pinged anyone for time-wasting? Well, I've only pinged a runner for being in the wrong area, and they okay. do not like that, I tell you what. Mm, they let you know about it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll much after that, actually. Um, in round seven, in the win over the Bombers, 16-year-old debutant Stephen Ray made his debut, kicking a goal from the boundary with his first kick. Ian Stewart leading the way with 29 disposals. Ditterich made his comeback against the Dogs in round 13, and while he was quiet, Stuart Trott and Cowboy Neil helped the Saints to victory. Uh, they won by 10 points, although it should have been much more. They had 10 more shots on goal than the opposition. Round 14, though, they lost to the Lions, which really put their Saint, their uh, finals hopes on hold. Round 15, they went down to Cardinia Park, and they trailed by three goals at three-quarter time. And the Cats fans were really digging into one man, Carl Ditterich. <laughs> <laughs> However, he used, this, he, he used this to inspire himself, and he turned in a dominant last quarter. He and Cowboy That's Neil kicked good. five goals between them, and they beat the Cats by two goals. Love it. <laughs> Uh, um, and let, let's track uh, Diderich against the Cats from now on because there's two interesting games he's played against them. Uh, their only other win from the last five weeks was over the Kangaroos, which was, uh, I'll say, by 86 points. Ian Stewart was his damaging best in that game. Uh, but seventh position for the Saints was their lo- worst ladder position in 10 years. 
Oh, yeah. yeah they've had a pretty dominant 60s. So they have. It's back to where they... For only a little bit of silverware, though, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's because they opened that pavilion. They've just they've been hanging that, out too much. That wasn't kangaroos. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the lead goal kicker down at the Saints was, of course, Cowboy Kevin Cowboy Neal with 50. And the Trevor Barker Award winner in 1969 was Bob Murray. Nice. Yeah. In sixth place... Essendon, 10 wins, 1 draw, 9 losses. Their percentage, 102.5. Charlie. Those mighty Dons are coached again by Jack Clark in his second year at the club. And captain, uh, changing hands, Ken Fraser giving it up for Don McKenzie. Yes. Uh, some debutantes include Wayne Headleam. Okay. I thought you'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Bombers started the season poorly, losing two, and then played a thriller against the Cats in which they trailed by six goals early on. They staged the comeback. They hit the front with three minutes to go when Paul Sproul kicked a point, but it was answered by John Davies of the Cats in the dying seconds, the game ending in a draw. Finally, in round four, we broke through for a win, beating the Demons by three goals. New names were starting to make um, themselves known, including Robin Close and Alan Noonan, who we have heard a little bit about, but now that some of the players like Fraser and Nepis have retired, these ones are the ones taking their place. Um, on, of the remaining veterans, though, Jeff Gosper was the standout against North in a five-goal win in round five. Then a 25-point win over the Lions had them on a three-game winning streak. Round 12, they had a really good victory over eventual premiers, the Tigers. Barry Davis starring as the Bombers embarrassed Richmond and lifted the Bombers to fifth on the ladder. Barry Davis would continue this excellent form in a win down at Cardinia Park. The Bombers starting sluggishly, but then coming home strong to win by 20. Then in round 15, perseverance and discovery of a fraction of extra pace in the last term sealed Essendon's narrow win against the Demons by five points. Ruckman McKenzie was the star in the last quarter, and second-year player Les Stillman kicked five goals. But then a costly loss to North Melbourne put finals all but out of the equation. Some final highlights for the round 17. Alan Noonan took his game to another level, kicking eight goals eight as the Bombers easily accounted for the Lions. A week later, he kicked 6-7 against the Saints in a big win. Barry Davis, Bob Greenwood and Kevin Egan, the stars as the Bombers dominated the second half. But then they lost their final two games to finish a disappointing season, one where... They were expected to stay at the top of the ladder. They, you know, they'd finished top in '68. Uh, hadn't won the grand final, but you know they had the, had the star power yeah. there, and they just really dropped off. Yeah. Least improved trophy? Is there one of those going around? <laughs> 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 so, uh, lead goal kicker Michael. was Alan Noonan with 43, and our Crichton medalist in '69 was Barry Davis. Two years in a row. Yeah. Legend. Legend. Mm. In fifth place, Hawthorne. 13 wins, 7 losses, and percentage 98.8. So, uh, in 69, we had a new captain taking over from Graham Arthur. David Parkin, mm. the young man. And coached again, of course, by John Kennedy Senior. Um, and some big debutants as well, Charlie. Well, jeez, it's been a few big years of big debutantes from Hawthorne, hasn't it? Listen to these ones. We've got, so we've got Gene Chiron and Lindsay Tipping, who mm-hmm. I'm sure you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. But then we've got Peter Knights and Lee Matthews. Yeah, wow. Kaz? Okay, who are we going with? We're going with Lee? Yep. Lethal. Lee Matthews. Um, 
squat, short-legged and barrel-chested Matthews ranks with the game's all-time greats. He had a leading he was a leading figure in Hawthorne's sustained era of success and embodied the qualities that made the Hawks the envy of other clubs. Mighty lethal Lee. And Peter Knights, uh, ex Langwari. Long worry, excuse me. I've got my, my langs and my worries mixed up. Uh, one, of the ga- one of the game's all-time greats. His spectacular marking was a source of inspiration to photographers. An injury robbed him of a Brownlow medal in 1976. A little bit about Peter Knightson. Lethal. Great. So, I mean, at Hawthorne, it's really the Peter Hudson story again this yeah. year. But um, round one saw a good win over Collingwood by 22 points to kick off the season at Glen Ferry. Round two was a major embarrassment, which we'll talk about when we get to Carlton. Round three was against Essendon. Coach John Kennedy promised an honour board in the club rooms should the side manage victory. So some real incentive there. Yeah. Uh, Hawthorne had been given no chance of winning. But Hudson kicked four in the first quarter to establish a small lead. But the Bombers came back to trail by a point at half time. But then the Hawks emerged from the rooms, pumped up. They kicked four goals to one in the third term. Essendon came again, but the Hawks, again in the fourth quarter, um, held them off. Peter Crimmins snagged the sealer with his second, and the Hawks got up by 13 points. So across the first four games, Hudson kicked bags of six against Collingwood, four against Carlton, six against Essendon, four against Footscray. Um, and this you know, kicked off a really good, strong season for him. Um, that win against Essendon kicked off a six-game winning streak as well. Round five against the Demons, Hudson went berserk. <laughs> he kicked 16 of Hawthorne's 21 goals in a 32-point win to stake his claim as one of the best full forwards going around. He was just too shy of, obviously, Fred Fanning's record. Hudson snapped his first goal of the match early in the first quarter and had seven by half time. yet amazingly, Hawthorne trailed Melbourne until Hudson put the Hawks in front with a fir- the first goal of the third quarter. From there on, it was the Hudson procession, um, and they won by 32 points, as I said. Round seven, uh, the game against Richmond in which Crimmins booted three goals was significant for two reasons. One, the win put the Hawks on top of the ladder, albeit with the league's eighth worst percentage at the time, (laughs) uh, for the first time since 1963. And secondly, it was the first time that Peter Hudson was ever held goalless. Wow. In the the VFL, I should say. It'd be the last time until round two, 1974, or 62 games later. Is that something you could have bet on then? (laughs) Round 10, the Hawks defeated South Melbourne by 58 in a game which Hudson managed another haul of 13 goals too. At one point, having 11 straight on the board. His huge total helped Hawthorne to their highest ever score of 25 goals, 13-163. But the Hawks found momentum hard to come by and were knocked off by ninth place Footscray in round 15 by 13 points despite Hawthorne... Despite Hudson bagging nine goals. So they've really they've just got a leaky defence. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, he followed it with another nine against Melbourne in a 36-point win. Round 17 against North Melbourne, Hudson kicked his 100th goal for the season with his sixth goal of that game. <laughs> this time, the Glen Ferry crowd surged into the ground in mad celebration. The Hawks won a high-scoring game by 18 points. However, two goal losses in the next two rounds to fellow finals aspirants Richmond and Geelong derailed the Hawks' season sending them to fifth with one round to play. And then they had to rely on the Tigers losing and them winning to uh, to make finals. Yeah. And we know this is never a good thing. Um, we know that Hawthorne didn't play finals, obviously, um, but they finished their season with an 11-point win over the Saints. Hudson kicked eight, uh, including his 300th career goal, to finish the season with 120 goals. Um, but this is interesting. In the end-of-year report, the club took aim at the umpires, complaining that preconceived notions of Hawthorne's physicality were affecting the umpires' decisions. 
Yeah. The club pointed out that with nine and a half wins in 1968, the club received the second highest number of Brownlow votes, whereas in 1969, with 13 wins, they received the fourth lowest amount. Our coach asked the players to have the courage to go get the ball. Elsewhere, there is set a high store of courage. We feel it's time the umpires did the same. Hey, okay. So interesting. So, as, as you just said, Timmy, of course, Peter Hudson took out the goal kicking there with 120. The next closest was Peter Crimmins with 33. Uh, and the Peter Crimmins medal in 69 went to Bob Keddie for the second time. So the night series ah, the night of, uh, of 1969 to me. Still the Golden Fleece night Excellent. premiership. We're keeping that going. Uh, and a few interesting ha- things happened in the 69. Do tell. Uh, well, I will. But let's first talk through the, the games, shall we? So um, we should say this year, unfortunately, crowd, uh, crowd seemed to plummet in the night series, which is strange. That's similar to what we were talking about with the season normal. Well. Yeah, exactly. So... They peaked, we talked about they peaked in 65 with like 100, almost 155,000 over the entire series. Yep. 68 was 90,000 90, and then 69, just under 80,000 plus a full return size for all of them. So it's almost half of what it was only four years ago. Uh, so let's talk about these games. So in our first round, we've got Footscray playing off against South Melbourne. South Melbourne starting strong and then falling apart. Footscray winning that one. Uh, Melbourne... Uh, beating St Kilda pretty comfortably there in that second game. Um, Essendon versus Fitzroy was moved because of uh, weather and then that game played out the next night with an interesting little um, break in in the middle of the third quarter when spectators on the wing of the game started throwing cans at the (laughs) umpire. What? Yeah, players stepped in to support him and started throwing cans back at the crowd. (laughs) And then it just kept escalating with both parties hurling cans back and forth for several minutes (laughs) until order was restored and play resumed. That's amazing. Supporters and players just throwing cans at each other. At this stage, people are just going there to get drunk, aren't they? Yeah, well, you'd assume so, right? So very close game in the end, but Fitzroy (laughs) winning by a goal. Um, after the cans, uh, and then Hawthorne beating North Melbourne very convincingly. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, very comfortably and convincingly, I should say. Um, that moves us to the semis, uh, where Melbourne managed to beat Footscray coming back after three quarter time, uh, and Fitz uh, Hawthorne defeated Fitzroy by two points, just squeaked it in, but big scores, 118 to 120. Giving us the grand final, Melbourne versus Hawthorne. Melbourne all know about grand finals, don't they? Yes, exactly. Uh, so in front of 21,000 people, the biggest crowd of the series, as you'd expect. Hawthorne managed to pull it off by five points. This absolute squeaker, 9-18-72, going down to Hawthorne's 10-17-77. So in that game... Uh, Melbourne's captain, Bob Johnson, was unavailable, so vice-captain Stan Alves led the Ds. Hutto kicked eight goals against Fitzroy in the second semi and, again, led the goal-kicking for the entire thing with 17 goals from his three-night games, only one shy of the record he equaled the previous year. And Hawthorne have gone back-to-back in the night series. Wow. 
go. So the only team, well, a few teams have done it. South Melbourne won 56-57, Footscray 63-64 and North 65-66. So it's, it's, they've sort of, they learn how to play these games. They so, do. So there we go. There is the Golden Fleece Night Premiership. Well, Richmond in fourth place now. 13 wins, 7 losses, the same as Hawthorne, but their percentage are whopping 124.6. Yeah, so not much changing down at uh, Tigerland. Still Tommy Hafey in charge and uh, captained by Roger Dean for the second year. Yes, all right, so some debutantes. We've got Ray Ball, father of Luke Ball. Hey. Uh, Wayne Judd, no relation to Chris Judd, and Colin Beard. Pre-season, Richmond played Glenelg in a practice match, uh, and they have the same. They're, I think they're both the Tigers and wear black and, and yellow. So the Tigers were forced to wear an all-blue jersey. The Tigers won that game uh, by about ten goals. Kevin Bartlett was credited with forty disposals <laughs> and five goals Jeez. in that game. Yeah. Um, also, an interesting fact for this season because Royce Hart was in the army in Adelaide. He trained the season with Glenelg and would fly over on weekends for most games. Oh wow! Yeah. The Tigers started the season well, winning five of their first six games. This included the first two against Essendon and Collingwood, in which Rex Hunt kicked seven goals against Collingwood. Uh, but then the Tigers slumped. Round seven, they lost to the Hawks. But fullback Barry Richardson was able to hold his head high as he became the first VFL player to hold Hudson goalless. His strategy was starting 15 metres behind him. Yeah, And then okay. the Hawks just chipped the ball over to him all day. So it's interesting, the next time they played each other, Peter Hudson just stood on the goal line. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. In round eight, in the loss to Carlton, Michael Patterson was hit in the face with a football by Carlton trainer Ron Vincent. This event was immortalised in the um, music video of Mike Brady's up there, Kazali. <laughs> so at about one minute 56, you can see that he, he gets up and throws a ball in his face. Um, similarly, round nine, another moment was immortalised in a loss to Footscray. Um, footage of Ted Whitten rubbing mud in Dick Clay's face. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, around this time, the Tigers were also missing players like... Uh, Patterson, Brown, Norley and Jewell due to injury and form. And then after the round 12 loss to the Bombers by nine points, the Tigers had lost five of their last six and everyone was calling for Tommy Hafey's head. Mm. Yeah. You know, Tigers don't, you know, mm. they can't settle for things. They're not going to write it out. They, you know, there must be something wrong. Um, but they pulled it together. Round 13 was something to prove against the Pies. The Tigers came out to play. Captain Roger Dean setting the scene early, kicking the first two goals. Rex Hunt was back in the side. He kicked the next four from four kicks. And the, look, the game was on. The Pies hung in there thanks to Peter McKenna. They kicked 5-5 in the last quarter to come within two points, but the Tigers held on. Barrett and Bartlett the best for the Tigers. Then Dick Clay helped them smash the ruse, but the Lions then upset them as well. The Lions doing a bit of damage in the back half of the season here, which meant the Tigers had to win all the remaining games to make finals. They had wins over Melbourne and Hawthorne, had them a game out of the four. Then round 19 was a real test. They came up against Carlton, top of the ladder, at Princes Park. It was a crucial matchup, and it was a high-scoring game. Barrett was playing really poorly, so he swapped with Eric Moore to full forward, and he finished the day with eight goals. The Tigers turning a 17-point deficit at three-quarter time into a 29-point win after a nine-goal to nothing last quarter. In round 12, they finished strongly with a 90-point demolition of the Dogs, but this was soured when Mike Perry was reported and suspended for whacking Dogs ruckman Tad Joniak and copping four weeks. Um, this was after Ted Witten had kind of run down to the umpires and said, hey, look what's happening, look what's happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was the, uh, the Tigers just scraping into finals here. Yes. Wow. So, Interesting so, story for them this year. Yeah. Uh, so Big Rex, yibbity yibbity, 55 goals leading it off. Uh, and the Jack Dyer medal in 69 went to um, the first fly-in, fly-out payer I've ever heard of, Royce Hart. Yeah. yeah. 
pretty impressive. Uh, we're in the modern era. And in third place, Geelong with 13 wins, one draw, six losses. Their percentage, 119.9, Charlie. Yes, so in 69, captained again by Billy Goggin uh, and coached by Peter Pianto. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a winner of the McCracken Name Award. Yes. <laughs> Very um, well-deserved winner. <laughs> debutant we got is Ray O'Rourke. Anyway... There's a, then there's a reason I've only reading one name out as well. I'll get to that. Round one, the Cats struggled with the Demons in the first half before they got their act together in the second. Goggin and Wade leading the team to the win. They should have beaten the Bombers, but salvaged the draw. Fun fact, the round two... I think it was round three, actually. Round three draw. I'm just going to double-check that. It's so funny. It says here Tommy Hafey was, like, almost sacked. He won a premiership. One's won this year. Yeah. Oh, it's nuts. The constant Tommy Hafey is going to get sacked is such a thing for me. <laughs> but the, way, the fact they win the premiership this year is unbelievable. Yeah. This is going to be good. Yeah. All right, so, um, so they should have beaten the Bombers. They salvaged the draw. This draw they had in round two would be the last draw Geelong have until 1987, which is a record for most games without a draw. Is it? Yep. Okay. Yeah, well, that makes sense. It's 20 years. Yes. Yeah, 20 years. Just under, yeah. yeah. Um. They then went on a four-game winning streak. Round three, the Cats destroyed the Swans by 10 goals. Doug Wade kicking nine goals, seven himself. Uh, Nan Curvis with 36 disposals. They had a big win over the Saints at Moorabbin by 23. A week later, they ran up a huge score, beating the Dogs at Witten Oval. Raid, his accurate best with nine goals, one. Goggin best on ground, 33 disposals, and kicked three goals, three. Round, nine, round six, seven, eight, and nine, the Cats went two wins against Carlton and Fitzroy and two losses to North and Hawthorne. But across those four games, Doug Wade kicked seven goals in each. In round seven, loss to North, Wade had a goal in the first 30 seconds of the match, which was also his 500th league goal. Yeah, wow. Also, after eight games, Geelong had the unusual stat in that it had not played a new recruit at all. And it wasn't until round nine when David Harris made his debut in the win over the Cats. I, I can't remember a game, a season no, with a team waiting so long to introduce a new player. From the previous season, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it doesn't say any particular reason there. Just no. consistency, obviously. Yeah. And look, they, they haven't, they've won most of their games, so the team obviously doesn't need to be changed yeah. that much and they haven't had injuries. Um, round 11, Ian Nankervis outshone Doug Wade. He kicked six goals to himself. The Cats kicked eight goals to three to start the game to set the scene and eventually won by 27. But round 16 is why you all came to listen to this. Okay, tell us about it. Going into this game against the Dogs, Doug Wade needed 11 goals to bring up his 100. I mean, surely. Surely. You go into that thinking, no, next week, not this week. And he started the game poorly. He kicked one goal four in the first half. In the first half? But then in the second half, he caught fire. Kicking six goals in the third quarter. The crowd were chanting, come on, Wadey! The last quarter started. Wade kicked his eighth. Then his ninth. Then his tenth. He was one away from 100. Then at the 26-minute mark, John Scarlett was kicking out from behind. He kicked it over to Hampshire, who marked and kicked along to Walker, who hand-passed to the running Goggin. Goggin scampered away from the pack and a shot a quick drop pass to Wade. The yes. crowd went nuts. He went back to take his kick, and he kicked truly. The crowd spilling onto the ground to celebrate. Spectators, Wade comes in and kicks. And just a little sidebar here on Doug Wade's 100 goals. Um, this appears to be where the tradition of running onto the ground to celebrate once the players kicked 100 ga- goals began. Um, the reason being that um, 
Doug Wade wasn't supposed to kick 100 goals before Peter Hudson. It was Peter Hudson's was expected to be the first player that season. So when he did kick the 11 goals in the game against Footscray, uh, the crowd was so excited they ran onto the field to celebrate that he kicked 100 goals and he'd also beat Peter Hudson uh, to that milestone. So um, that information comes from Dan Eddy. Um, I'm pretty sure that's true. It sounds like it's true. Uh, so we'll go with that. Round 19, uh, the Hawks got the jump over the Cats early with seven goals to three and had to play catch-up across the rest of the game. Ian Nankervis led them out of trouble in the final quarter while Wade added eight goals as the Cats kicked six to the Hawks, two to win by 15. A highlight of the game was Doug Wade's spectacular mark and boomerang goal bringing up the Cats 12th for the game. Round 12, they were upset by the Lions, mm-hmm. but uh, they were still made finals, but not the best way to head into finals. And I should say that uh, Doug Wade, with all the goals, won the Coleman, not, yes. not Hudson. So yeah, you'd, no, think, no. you'd think Peter Hudson, 120 goals. Oh. No, 127 yeah. for Doug Wade. Oh. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, so 127, and you wouldn't be surprised to know that he also won the Karchi Greaves medal oh. in 69, yeah. would you? So in second place, Carlton with 15 wins, 5 losses, their percentage 120.5. So uh, coached again by RDB, the great man Ronald Dale Barassi, <laughs> and captain this year by John Nichols. So it's been sort of a three-year handover. It was Barassa and John Nichols last year. The year before it was just Barassa, now it's just Johnny. Yeah, well, Barassa isn't playing. No, well, yeah. Um, we've got some, some other big debutants here. Philip Pinnell is one of them, but the other two are Sid Jackson, who finally gets his chance, and Bruce Dool. Let me tell you about Bruce Dool. So, um, first off, 356 games. Goals? 22. Um, <laughs> Dool was possibly the most popular footballer to wear the old dark blue and made famous as he was getting older for his greying beard and navy blue white headband, which uh, kept his thinning long hair in place. And can you tell us a bit about Sid Jackson as well? I will try. Yeah, I saw that because there's lots of different Jacksons. I'm not sure yeah. which one. Sid. Sid Jackson? Sid, Sid, Sid. Yeah. Okay, yeah. got you. <clears throat> this is so awkward. Okay, Sid Jackson, 136 games um, and 165 goals. A long-kicking, brilliant Aboriginal half-forward flanker, it says here in those words, with devastating pace, who was originally spotted as a 17-year-old at Ruland's Mission in South Bunbury. Lovely. All right, so Sid Jackson made his debut in round one against the Saints, finally after having to sit out for a year. Um, He was best on ground in the three-point win at Moorabbin. Fun fact, this game would mark the first of 880 matches in succession in which Carlton's team would include at least one premiership player. Jeez. Yeah, a magic run that would eventually end in round 11, 2006, some 37 years later. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Round... That's a great stat. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm a bit um, Yeah, well, that's uh, Blues AM. The Blues AM yeah, website are yeah. incredible for those kind of quirky little stats. Yeah. Round two, the... Carlton set a record for the highest score in a game, scoring 30 goals, 30, 210 against Hawthorne. This beat Richmond's 38-year-old mark set in the 1931 season. Carlton kicked six goals in the first, seven in the second, five in the third, and 12 in the last. Percy Jones kicked seven, three. Jezelenko, six goals, 12, and Brent Crosswell, four. It was the first time a team in the VFL had scored over 200 points, and the score is still Carlton's highest ever score and their greatest winning margin. And for the fourth year in a row, the highest score of the season was kicked against Hawthorne. <laughs> so you talked about their uh, leaky defence, Charlie. Well, they obviously don't care too much at this stage, no. do they? are thinking, OK, we just got to outscore the other team. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah, the Carlton won by 128 points there. Yes. 
Then they beat the Dogs in round four, and in the following week, Coach Ron Barassi told four long-whiskered blues, that being Peter Jones, Wes Lofts, Brent Crosswell, and Adrian Gallagher, to get those sideburns chopped back or else. <laughs> so they did. <laughs> uh, but, but perhaps this was the reason for their controversial loss to the Magpies in round five. Um, following this game, which we'll talk about a bit later, Barassi was given a letter of warning for suggestion, suggesting on TV that the reporting of his player McLean was ridiculous and frivolous. So it was no surprise then in round six when they had a win over the Cats that Ron Barassi was ordered to appear before the VFL executive to answer a complaint made by field umpire Jolly that Barassi had spoken to him on the field during the three-quarter time break. But no, no action was taken. Barassi said he wouldn't have. I won't do it again. <laughs> but yeah, he's just... And this is something that's come up across the last few seasons. Barassi kind of arguing with the umpires, whether it's a tactical thing to slow the game down or just, you know, chirping in their ear about yeah. fairness, which sounds very Norm Smith as well. Yeah, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, round seven, Ron Barassi came out of retirement. <laughs> so his last match because he... This was against Melbourne as well. Um, He wanted to get to 50 games for Carlton so his son could qualify to play for Carlton or Melbourne. Um, And Melbourne were a bit pissed off about this as well because Melbourne were on the bottom of the ladder. Like, why why is he coming out against us? Because because we're down the bottom. That's a bit disrespectful. Um, But a torn torn hamstring in the third quarter ended his comeback. (laughs) Carlton won comfortably. Another fun fact for you about Carlton. In this game, they scored their 100,000th point. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Then Carlton beat rivals Richmond and then the Bombers. Round 10 saw an easy win over North Melbourne, but fullback Wes Lofts was in more trouble and incurred a two-match suspension for using abusive language towards the goal umpire, Tom Rossiter, during the game against North. Round 11, Carlton kicked a big score of 24 goals, 14, 158. It's highest against Fitzroy for 33 years. Also Carlton's 13th consecutive win over Fitzroy. Jezelenko, the chief goal kicker here, was six. Um, in the lead-up to the round 13 win over the Hawks, Brent Croswell was dropped to the reserves for breaking training regulations. I mean, we talked about Croswell last episode where he kind of just he marches to the beat of his own drum. Yeah. Uh, this didn't really phase him. Anyway, they missed him. They didn't miss him as they won by 69 points. Round 14, they beat the Dogs, Jezza with seven. In round 15, 43,000 people flocked to Victoria Park for the return bout between Carlton and Collingwood, where Carlton held a slight advantage all day to win by 10 points. Crosswell returned to the team in round 16 against the Swans. Carlton seven goals to one in the last quarter finished off the Swans by 52 points in a one-sided affair. Crosswell kicked four in his return. This was their 10th win on the trot. Then round seven, round 18 was an upset of the season. The D's knocking off the top of the table blues. Yes. Uh, and then a loss to the Tigers was followed by a final round win over the Bombers. The team kicked nine goals in the second to overrun them. Jezza was seven. But to finish the season... Um, their leading goal kicker, Charlie, was. Jezelenko. But Percy Jones had 46. Gallagher, Crosswell, Walls, Nichols all kicked 30 goals or more. Yes. Yeah, like, you yeah, look yeah, at their absolutely. spread of goals, it's, it's insane. And uh, Sid Jackson was just under that with 27. So, yeah. Ridiculous. So, I mean, you've got you got Hawthorne here like with the spearhead kicking a lot himself. But then yeah. you've got these guys sharing more than that. Well more than that. Well, yeah. well more, yeah. Yeah. No, and, that's a good point. And yes. their best and fairest winner? The John Nichols uh, medal in 69 went to Gary Crane. Yes. We're shaping up to be a good finals with these different teams playing different styles. Collingwood in first place, though, with 15 wins, five losses, and their percentage 129. Yes, the minor premiers there, ca- uh, coached by Bob Rose again, of course, and captained by Des Tubman for his last We'll get to that as well. It's an interesting story itself. Some debutants include Ronnie Weirmouth and Doug Gott. 
And a shout out to Brian Hansen's Magpie History book. It's been quite helpful with this stuff. So pre-season, uh, Des Tudnam asked for a pay rise. Mm-hmm. He said he wanted 5000 a year for three years. The club knocked, club knocked him back. So he just stored this away in his mind for, for later. Yep. Uh, things started poorly for the Pies. They lost their opening two games. And it wasn't until round three they were able to beat the Demons by 68 at Victoria Park. Peter McKenna kicking six. But round four is where it's at here. Carlton Collingwood, two traditional rivals. They played a tough, spiteful and vicious match, which the Pies took full control of in the third quarter when they kicked 12 goals to the Blues' two points. Uh, in this game, Greening kicked seven goals himself for the Pies, but the game really stands out for the brawls that occurred. Here's some of the... Uh, it's the reports that were made. Well, sorry. Here's some of the things that happened. Percy Jones of Carlton was reported for striking both Terry Waters and Jerker Jenkins of Collingwood during the first quarter. Carlton's Ricky McLean was reported for striking Len Thompson of Collingwood in the first quarter and then striking Brian McKenzie in the last. Ted Potter was reported for striking John Nichols during the last. Len Nichols was reported for striking Carlton's Finn Waite. Um, now... Here's the thing. While the field umpire, Ray Sleeth, was writing out the match reports, he had an extended heated clash with Carlton President George Harris. The reason for this extended clash was later evident when all charges against the players were dropped on a technicality because the umpires had taken too long to inform club officials of the charges after the final siren had sounded. Therefore, the charges couldn't be laid because he'd wasted their time, so they had no time to to tell them. Oh, I love it. The report is done because they have to let them know that's... So, but they made too many. So, they made so many. <laughs> so the umpires threatened legal action. Like, we're going to strike. If you, you can't do this, they did. they did. In the end, they didn't. But yeah, it's a real abuse of uh, the system, isn't it? That's yeah. A yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you, you have to. Be, it must have been more than two hours, for example. Like, say, so I think that's what what it normally is. Two hours. Yeah. Like a, or you can like you can be reported for something if you have a bunny in the car park. Yeah. Two hours later, you can be. Booked it's like a filibuster. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So can you be booked for something after the game? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Interesting. As far as I know. Have you ever booked anyone after the game? I wanted to. Okay. Yeah, for no reason. Yeah, <laughs> just for fun. Um, no, that's ridiculous. So following a loss to the Lions, a resounding win over the Dogs boosted morale and a thrilling victory. Let me do this again. A so following this loss to the Blues a resounding win over Footscray boosted morale and a thrilling win over the lowly Lions maintained the momentum so finals for Collingwood were back on the menu um, then Tudnam helped them to a win over North set up by 7 goals to 2 in the opening quarter Len Thompson was absolutely dominant in the ruck here round 10 Geelong came to Victoria Park and it was expected to be a tough game but the Pies controlled the first 3 quarters just but in the last quarter they kicked 5 goals to 1 to take command Rain Richardson the difference here with 34 disposals then a week later, it was Wayne Richardson again, um, leading the team to a come-from-behind victory at Windy Hill over the Bombers. A close game saw them lose to the Tigers by two points, but then beat the Demons by the same margin a week later. John Greening kicking a goal that gave the Pies a win they probably didn't deserve. Hmm. They had solid wins over St Kilda, Footscray and Fitzroy. Round 19, Magpies absolutely smashed the Swans by 71 at Victoria Park. However, the story of this game was Peter McKenna, who had a day out. So at one stage, he kicked 11 goals straight, including five of the team's six goals in the third quarter. He was on 16 goals late in the match. And he needed one more to equal Gordon Coventry's record of 17. And the crowd were just cheering him on. Late in the quarter, Wayne Richardson had the ball and had a chance to give him the shot, but instead he chose to have a shot at goal himself. Oh. <laughs> he missed, and what do you think the Magpie faithful did? Booed him. They booed him. Of course they did. Um, this win... Gave them top spot on the ladder, um, but yeah. Uh, 
Final round, hard-fought win over the Kangaroos saw them hold top spot, and among the media, they were labelled the hot favourites for the flag. Of course. Um, Charlie, tell us a little bit about Peter McKenna's season. Peter McKenna's season. 98 goals for Peter McKenna. Unbelievable. And uh, we had Barry Price as the Copeland Trophy Award winner this year. So we've got three players, or two well over 100, one almost there. Are we back to the too many goals here in football? We're getting there, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking... I mean, so it's no surprise then that the Coles goals winner for 1969 was Carlton. Carlton, yes. 271 goals. Which gets us to the Brownlow Moz. The Brownlow Downlow. The Brownlow Downlow with Moz. And Kaz, it's, I'm so glad you're here to hear this. This is, you, this is your man, this is your boy. Your bulldog. <laughs> the bulldog. <laughs> Was. Indeed, Kevin Bulldog Murray won the Brownlow this season with 19 votes. He only just scraped the win, though, with both... There were two runners-up, both finishing on 18 votes. Um, Essendon's Barry Davis and Footscray's George Bissett. It was one of the most popular Brownlow wins to date because <laughs> the uh, crowds around the country respected Murray um, for playing with extensive injuries. Real right, Kaz? Real yeah. people's champion. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, apparently had a terrible back and often played in his back brace. Oh. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Like a corset. Strap it really yeah. tight. Yeah. Um, he also <laughs> nice hips. Keep everything. Up. Um, he also required two treatments a day to be able to continue playing. Um, and he, he, it was also a very popular win because most people thought he was over the hill and had given yep. up his chance of winning the award. He came second twice came third once and then at the age of 31 finally won the medal is he the old one of the oldest he was the oldest that time okay. yeah yeah yep, yep. unsure to if date he still is, okay. yeah but definitely at the time he was the oldest and then he continued to play and um until 1974 another five seasons yeah. <laughs> so he was not done yet um he's the son of former footscray player dan murray who was part of the 1944 grand final and although he was only five foot ten, he had a super long arm span. I am imagining like an orangutan. Yeah, yeah. Super oh, that's perfect. Longer than his height, and um, <laughs> he apparently said that he felt like a six six player because of his arm span. <laughs> so go Kevin Bulldog Murray. And one of, one of my other, other favourite facts about that is he still wears his brown light everywhere he goes. He keeps it on a chain around his neck. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, gets a photo with everybody. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I met I met him. At an open day a few years ago. Oh, was he wearing it? Yep. And I got to chat. He, he sent a message to Kaz as well. Oh, oh fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well done, Bulldog. Still the people's champion. Yeah. Always. Um, let's get to some finals. Let's get to some finals. All righty. So our first semi-final in front of 101,233 people was Geelong versus Richmond. Geelong going into this game as the slight favourite, having a better mm. overall season. But look, <laughs> didn't last Richmond long. threw out a strong challenge to the 69 flag with one of the greatest displays ever seen in a semi-final. Absolutely crushing Geelong. They kicked the biggest score in the first quarter than the Cats did in the whole game. Yeah. <laughs> They came out, they kicked eight goals, three to two goals, one in the first quarter. The Cats were expected to dominate the ruck, but led by Mike Green, this was not the case at all. On top of this, Barrett, Burke and Clay dominated with 80 disposals between them. Eric Moore kicked six, Burke four and Bartlett three. 
The game ended with a record margin of 118 points. Mm. Richmond's... Well, we can do well, Yeah, Ge- Geelong's 7-7-49, paling in comparison to Richmond's 25-17-167. Um, so much so that Geelong coach Peter Pianto almost collapsed at three-quarter time addressing his cho- troops. Well, Such was the shock that he was in. You, I mean, we've got to talk... So the final score actually makes it look better than it was because Geelong managed to kick four goals in the last quarter. They were yeah. at 3-6 at three-quarter time. So, yeah. so it could have been horrific. Yeah, nine scoring shots to 31 at three-quarter time. Yeah. Mind you, Richmond's kept piling it on with five goals. Yeah. 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 Um, which gets us to the semi-final. The second, uh, the second semi, which was uh, Collingwood versus Carlton in front of 108,544 people. Huge crowd there, as we said, Collingwood-Carlton, and it was tight. Yeah, well, look, having having played some uh, some big games during the season, these two teams don't like each other. But John Nichols had a field day in this matchup, dominating the ruck duels, while Adrian Gallagher was the biggest beneficiary of this dominance. Carlton had a slender three point lead at half time, but six goals to one gave them control. But the Pies weren't done yet. They kicked the first four of the last quarter to get within twelve points. But after eighteen scoreless minutes, the Blues turned it on with five more of their own to run mm-hmm. out six goal winners. Yeah. McKenna tried valiantly for the Pies, kicking four of the team's ten goals, and Des, Des Tudnam also worked tirelessly, but not to be. Carlton by thirty six points. Yes. So final score there: Collingwood ten eleven seventy one, Carlton sixteen eleven a hundred and seven. Thank goodness they didn't belt the living suitcase out of each other. Mm. So the prelim. Takes us to a Collingwood versus Richmond in front of 107,279. Some huge crowds for this oh, final absolutely. series. I mean, for your neutral supporters, this is not a good final series. Carlton, Collingwood, Richmond. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, look, the prelim was a torrid affair. Very scrappy early on. Collingwood threw everything at the confident Tigers. McKenna kicked a ripper of a goal in the first quarter. Straight back over his head. Goalpost height. Mm-hmm. The Pies by a goal at quarter time, but it suddenly ballooned to 25 points when they kicked the first three goals of the second quarter and the Tigers were floundering. But then the Tigers' superior fitness started to shine through. We know, you know, they worked with Percy Cerati. They kicked three goals, 10 for the quarter to go in level at half time. Third quarter, they kicked away, led by Kevin Bartlett, who finished the game with 23 kicks and kicked three goals, one of his own. His three bounces along the boundary and subsequent left foot shot at goal from the forward pocket brought the house down. Uh, now, this loss led to discussions about a Collingwood hoodoo, which eventually led to the term the Collywobbles. Ah, okay. Oh, yes. So this is, the, this is the beginning. I believe so. I mean, you can trace it back to losses like 66 and 64 yeah, as well. But the, yeah. um, and look, during this as well, it seems to a Collingwood supporter seems to have got access to a Collingwood room and ripped up or destroyed a tiger skin. A tiger skin. Okay. Because on, uh, on Rip Bartlett's Tigerland website, it talks about a new tiger skin being installed in the training room at the MCG. Uh-huh after the previous one was slashed um, following the prelim, all that remained was a paw. Alan Schwab destroyed the tiger, the destroyed one. Sorry. Alan Schwab says the destroyed tiger skin was given to the club around 20 years earlier. It had been valued at $1,000. Ray Dunn donated his tiger skin, which he received from Malay in 1968. It's kept in Charlie Collins' possession until the day of the grand final. Um, so that gets us then, Charlie, to the grand final. Yes, to the grandest of finals. So in front of 119,165 people, we've got Carlton versus Richmond. The last two premier teams. Yes. 7.68. Yeah, and you would have thought Carlton are coming to, into this game as favourites. Absolutely. Um, so let's boot up that, that back when machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's, let's chat to Roger Dean about this game.
Mate, welcome Roger Dean, Premiership Captain of the Richmond Football Club in 1969. How does that sound to you? It's fantastic, just wonderful. And what a win. Gee, it was terrific. Great win for the whole club. Uh, we came down from nowhere during the year. Mate, now, yeah, as you said, there's a lot of criticism labelled at the club all year, uh, especially at the coach. Uh, does today make up for that? More than ever. I was just so pleased with the boys. boys. They've been marvellous, no doubt about it. And what are the rumours about uh, Haithy possibly getting the sack during the year? Look, we were focused on playing as best we could. All I knew was that the players were well and truly behind him. He had faith in us, great faith in us, and anyone would have cut a finger off for him. Mate, so you was during the season, suffered a few bad losses. I think at one stage you lost five out of six games there. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. Tommy pointed out some of the pretty savage criticism the press was serving up about us. It hurt deep, down, and we were determined to show them what we were made of at Richmond. And an infusion of youth also helped. You're right there. An infusion of new blood into the side only a few weeks before the finals uh, was what helped turn our form around. Players had only been mediocre in the reserves, really rose to the occasion when they got their chance in the firsts. Uh, boys like Ian Owen, Colin Beard, Mike Perry, Eric Moore, they were players who really started us on our way back. So you reckon that win over Carlton was pivotal? Yeah, it was. Uh, at stages of the season, we were two or three games away from the top four, but we were holding fifth place. After that win over Hawthorne, we only had to beat Carlton at Princess Park to grab fourth spot. Carlton had us beat, but we weren't going to crack under the pressure, and we fought back to win by five goals. A confidence boost? Yeah, well, beating the top side on their own ground after being down gave us the confidence we needed heading into finals. So, as you did mention, you did qualify for the finals, really squeaking into the top four very late there in the season, but you boys were gaining momentum at the right time. My word, we were. So let's take you back to the semi-final against your 1967 nemesis Geelong and this was, well, I guess a very different game. You blew them away. What, what inspired this? The masterstroke before the semi-final was Tommy getting Percy Cerati to talk to the players before the game. Ah, so just like that 67 grand final. Mate, can you let us in? What did he say? He took us into a small room at the MCG, looked us all in the eye and said, you blo blokes don't know what's in store for you. You've got one thing in your favour. But then he pointed to Tommy and said, this little bloke here, he's for you. You're for him. And he went absolutely troppo. Everyone in that room didn't miss a beat. It was just so intense. He revved us up so much. Tommy didn't need to say a thing. We were jumping. We were never going to lose that game. And so then you came up against Collingwood in the prelim. And things looked pretty dire in this game as well. Um, you trailed by 25 points during the second quarter, but you were able to turn things around. Look, that's the way we've been playing these last few months. Took us a while to warm up, but once we found our normal tempo, I knew we were going to win. Mate, the weather today was uh, great footy, footy weather, uh, unlike the muddy season you've endured uh, up until this point. Yeah, well, on Tuesday, we couldn't train at Punt Road because the ground was a quagmire. So, nice to play today on a firm surface. Uh, teams were pretty much at full strength and lined up as expected. Did Jezelenko hold much fear for, I think it was Barry Richardson playing on him today? I think he was a bit nervous. You know, Barry held Hudson goal this year, goalless this year though. Uh, but we know Jez is a superstar. I think he had five or six on Barry, Barry earlier in the season. So a lot of thinking went into that matchup. But in the end, it was the right decision and he didn't let us down. Mate, well, we had 119,000 people that saw that game start and within seconds, your boys had a goal through Eric Moore. It was a good start. We kicked another goal before the Blues even scored. It was a good, fast start. But we hear that overall, you, you boys weren't really happy with the start of the game. Oh yeah, 
Well, as a club, we didn't expect an easy game. After all, grand finals are grand finals. We expected to fight really hard all day. That and your superstar Billy Barrett had a very quiet start to the game. The ball wasn't going through the centre. And then he was moved to full forward. And what were Tommy's instructions there? Just to play in front, keep moving, make Wes try and catch him all the time. And he dragged Wes right up the ground to the centre line at one stage we saw? Well, we knew he couldn't turn back quick. So we, uh, yeah, we told him to see what he could do. I think it worked. I'm not quite sure, but we won. That's all that matters. <laughs> Now, uh, so despite your disappointment with the start of the game, your boys led by four at the quarter time and then you shot ahead in the second quarter, kicking four to one. Well, this is when Barrett came into his own at full forward. He was just in everything. And from about the midpoint of that quarter, what did he kick? Two goals from seven or so kicks? He was just dominating the Blues. They were lucky to get one late, but we had them on the ropes. And just before half-time, Michael Green copped a bad knock. Did, uh, did the injury worry you? Very word it did. It was a big decision for Tommy to leave him on the field. So, so what was it? Uh, well, he got a slight concussion. Nobody realised that, I guess. Uh, but he also got a bad ankle, bad ankle injury. We're not exactly sure how bad that is. Uh, but he was getting around not too bright during the game. But I thought Michael fought back strongly. I thought it was a tribute to his courage, the way he continued to battle it out all day. So you came out with the Blues kind of on the ropes, uh, as you said, but they really turned the tables on you and came out fighting. Yeah, it was pretty hard to get back into it at half-time for a while. Were you, were you boys worried at all? Oh, I was very worried, uh, but I think Richmond held out. I thought they got a run on in the third quarter. Uh, we couldn't just seem to stop their run, but I was confident that we could get a run in return. So they kicked six goals to two and led you at three-quarter time. Even though... Carlton made that fantastic comeback, I felt at three-quarter time we'd win. I knew our persistence and determination would carry us through. Mate, for, well, from our perspective, though, you, you guys looked a little bit tired in the huddle. So, uh, what was going on? Yeah, well, this is the type of side we are. Last few games have come from four, five goals down. So, really, when you say we were, we were level scores at three-quarter time, we were better off compared to the other games. We thought we'd come home well. And were there any words of wisdom from Tommy? Well, at uh, three-quarter time, Tommy just brought out some clippings, you know, some of the criticism of the team from the year, uh, and said something to the effect of, get out there and show them that they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and there were a few positional moves um, that Carlton really couldn't keep up with as well. Yeah. Kevin Sheedy was switched to the centre for a while after Barrett and Northy kicked their goals. Uh, Carlton started running two Rovers in desperation, let Kevin run across the centre by himself. He didn't mind whatsoever. Uh, but you were never far enough in front to be comfortable? Not once. Even half-time. And I know I said we had them on the ropes, but in these games, things can change. And after that, we seemed to get further ahead. I think they didn't score a goal in the final term. Mate, you're absolutely right. It was four goals to none in that last term. How do you reckon you were able to get that over them? Well, all the boys played terrifically as a team. They backed one another. We just grit our teeth in the last quarter. We thought we would go on a little bit, but we fought back like we'd done throughout all the season. Um, and your back line, they were tremendous. Oh yeah, our defence played a big part in the win. Keeping Carlton to two goals in the first quarter and goalless in the last, the backman really laid the foundation for the win. Mate, your boys were just relentless. We never let up the pressure all day. Even though we were in front from the first minute, every player strove for that extra goal to prove the critics wrong. No one gave in at any stage. Um, so you mentioned the back line. Were there any players who stood out to you as best on ground, perhaps? Yeah, well, first I'd just like to pay tribute to our defenders. They were marvellous. 
and I'd like to give special mention to our fullback Barry Richardson. He was tremendous under the strain to hold Jezelenko, and he was great. Naturally, I'm very proud of the boys. No one gave in at any stage, and they all gave it, gave their all for 100 minutes. As I said earlier, Michael Green was just tremendous all day. And mate, what about Tommy? How how's he feeling? Relieved? What is it? Yeah, he looked like a mixture of elation and relief. We actually tried to get Tommy to sip some champagne from the cup. We're all egging him on, but he refused. So she said we should go fill it with some tea instead. <laughs> um, now, before we leave you, uh, this has just been an unbelievable turnaround from where you were at the midway point of the season. What's the secret to this turnaround that has you know, ultimately seen you achieve glory today? Uh, well, I think over the last six weeks, we've won matches when we've been in hopeless positions during the course of the game. And our players just realised if they were to play determined, relentless football for 100 minutes, we were going to finish in front. It's nearly as simple as that. Five goals down against Collingwood and Carlton three down against Hawthorne. You know, this is a typical match, to be quite honest. Well, Rog, mate, enjoy the thrill of becoming a Premiership captain and thanks for talking to us. Will do. Thanks all. There you go, Charlie. Huge. Huge. Um, okay, so some stats from this. Goals for Richmond, Barrett 3, Moore 2, Northey 2, Bartlett Bond, Dean Hart and Ronaldson with 1. For Carlton, Sid Jackson 2, John Nichols 2, Crosswell, Gallagher, Jezelinko and Walls 1. Just not their day. No. Uh. And best for Richmond, we got Green, Bartlett, Clay, Barrett, Northey, Dean, Shitty, Richardson. So, yeah. Um, some other fun facts as well. Uh, Robert Walls was playing his 50th game in this in the grand final, the youngest blue to ever reach this milestone. And goal, grand final umpire Jeff Crouch equaled the VFL record of five grand finals, um, which was Jack McMurray Jr.'s mm. record. Crouchy. Crouchy indeed. Um, also, Ian Owen's Richmond jersey carried the number 52, and I don't think there's any other record of a grand final player wearing a larger number. 52? Yeah. Although, okay. What was Sean Wren's number? Was he 54? I'm not sure. Um, Owen played the entire match with a depressed fracture of the cheekbone that he had sustained in the prelim against Collingwood a week earlier. Um, other results, we have reserves. Melbourne beating Carlton. Yes, they did. <laughs> uh, Richmond beat Hawthorne in the under-19s and the McClellan Trophy winner was Carlton. Um, but something we forgot to talk about last season, Charlie... Uh, was the Championship of Australia is back. Oh, really? Yeah, so in 68, Carlton uh, played Sturt in a game. I believe Carlton beat Sturt, actually, so Carlton were the champions in 68. So it happened again in 69. Um, so the week after the grand final, um, they went, went over to play... Actually, no, it was Sturt. So Richmond. Richmond played Sturt. Richmond played Sturt in the 69 Championship of Australia, and they won 117 to 64. Um, but before I get... Another interesting thing here is because Royce Hart had been training with Glenelg, yep. Glenelg qualified for the Sandville Grand Final and they applied to, to have him play. Oh, and so wow. he so he was he, allowed to play for Glenelg as well. in the Grand Final as well. Uh, so, uh, so I, I, sorry, I believe the Sandville Grand Final was the week after the tigers Carlton okay, yeah, game. Yeah, so yeah. That, that pushes so the championship... have been thinking about this all year too. That pushed the Championship of Australia game back a, a week Another later. Week, so, yeah. so, so he took he lined up for Glenelg. So he he just won the VFL Premiership. Now he's he playing in the Central for Glenelg, but this actually put a lot of noses out of joint at Glenelg. They were not happy he'd taken a regular person. No, because he hadn't played a game. No, exactly. The whole season. And it backfired because Glenelg lost to Sturt anyway. Imagine if you'd won two premierships in mm, two weeks. Yeah. 
And look, on Glenelg, like, I can understand it would, would have put people's noses out, but at the same time, if you've got the chance to have Royce Hart play in the Premiership, surely you're going to do it, aren't you? Like, surely. Yeah. And has this happened before? No, I don't think so. No. Um, well, there never would have been an opportunity. Like, yeah, no. crazy. I, it's surprising because isn't now the rule like you have to have played a certain amount of games? Of course, yeah. Oh. yeah so, but yeah, I mean, there's players who have played a VFL Grand Final and the AFL Grand Final yes. concurrently. Yes. Marlon Pickett did it, and there's a few like I remember Stephen King did it, and a few other players. Yeah, have done yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, also, postseason, St Kilda travelled to Papua New Guinea to take on a, a representative team there, mm-hmm. which I just found recently, which is an interesting little thing. Yeah, also. very. Um, but let's uh, let's wrap this bad boy up, shall we? Yes. 69 is the last season of the 60s. Yeah. So uh, the, our premiers, of course, are... Richmond. Richmond, defeating Carlton. Uh, the lead goal kicker for this year was Doug Wade of Geelong with 127 goals, Huge. which included five goals in finals. So he was still our Coleman medalist with 122. Yeah. Uh, Bradley medalist, Kaz? Uh, the great Kevin Murray. Yes. Um, very uh, very interesting Brownlow this year, as we spoke of, with George Bissett. We did, yeah. yeah uh, so, yeah, very close one there. Um, we have the Wooden Spoon going to... North Melbourne, their 11th Wooden Spoon. No, Melbourne. Melbourne, Melbourne. Melbourne sorry. Melbourne. Sorry, their first one since 51. Taking it oh. out. And as we just said, the Reserves Premiership was won by Melbourne, mm. uh, defeating Carlton. Not that we usually talk about that here, but I know you just wanted to get that in, Charlie. Yep. Yep. Um, Kaz, the McCracken Name Award. So, Wayne Headleam, with an M at the Headleam. Wayne Headleam. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Good job, Wayne. I mean, that beat out Bones McGee and Barry Digger Round. Yeah. Bones yeah. McGee. Bones McGee. Dick Ivy. <laughs> Tad Joniak. His name's Tad. Um, my retrospective Brownlow medal. Uh, sorry, my retrospective rising star. Yes. Barry Round of South Melbourne. Yeah, fair easing enough. Easing out uh, Paul Rowlands of Melbourne and John Petura of South. <laughs> Highest score of the season. Well, Lee Matthews didn't really qualify. No, he played two games. So they've, they've got to be the right age and, and play enough yeah. games. Um, high score was Carlton's 30 goals, 30, 210. Oh. The most behind was Doug Wade with 73. Yeah, Wade. <laughs> mm. Even in that game with Carlton, uh, there were so many points kicked in that big margin as well. Like. Yeah. Um, Premiership tallies as of 1969, which I don't think I did for 68, but anyway. Um, we've got Collingwood with 13, Essendon 12, Melbourne 12, Carlton 9, Fitzroy 8, Richmond 7, Geelong 6, South Melbourne 3, Footscray 1, Hawthorne 1, St Kilda 1. What a dream season for Richmond. And some retirees. Oh yes, always a sad time. Ronald Dale Barassi Jr. Mm -hmm. Was his dad's name Dale as well? Ron Barassi Jr. 254 games, 330 goals, 6 flags. As a player, one as a coach so far. Um, as it, a playing coach, right? No, he didn't no, play in that play, game. No. Um, some other other Melbourne champions. You got Kenny Emsell, ninety-seven games, hundred oh. hundred nine goals, one only one flag. Barry Vag, hundred fifteen games, hundred thirty-two goals, no flags for him. Tassie Johnson, Melbourne first Tasmanian to play two hundred games in the VFL, two hundred two games, twenty goals. I don't actually have his flags here. Probably one of you. Probably. Uh, we've got Ian Bryant of Footscray, 160 games, 21 goals. Ian Sinman of St Kilda, 154 games, one flag. Herbie Matthews, 102 games, 30 goals. Mike Patterson of Richmond, 152 games, 73 goals, one flag. 
Essendon's Ted Fordham, 128 games, 214 goals. And Rod Olsen of Hawthorne, 116 games, 64 goals. So a good retiring class there. Mm. Dazzy Johnson won three premierships, 59, 60 and 64. Thank you. Um, and that wraps up the 60s, which I th- I've really enjoyed the 60s. Oh, me too. So yeah. many teams have kind of... You've had Hawthorne and St Kilda winning their first. Yeah. You've had Melbourne and the Bombers winning two each. Yeah, yeah, it's good. You've got people breaking their droughts. It's been a really good season of change and yeah. new teams. And, yeah. and some of the... Some of the um, some of the powerhouse clubs that fell apart for a while are now starting to come back as well. It's keep, it's keeping things interesting. Yeah, I mean, when you look ahead to the seventies, when only four teams win the flags, yeah. it's, you know they, they compare very differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally agree. Um, yeah. But that rounds out the nineteen sixty nine season and our year our of seasons. Twenty twenty one. Yeah, yes. we'll be uh, we're recording our best of team stuff soon. Our very special special. Yep. Um, so look out for that. But otherwise. We will see you in uh, the new year for our 100th episode. Yes, massive. 1970 episode is going to be our 100th episode. Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be we're, huge. We're going to run through a banner of some description. Yep. <laughs> um, what else can we do? I don't know. We'll think of some things. We'll think of some things. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be great. But uh, thank you guys for listening and keeping us motivated and excited to do this. The feedback that we get of, of people telling us different stories and and uh, and nice things that people say about this is, is great. And yep. we, yeah. we don't just do it for us, although it's mainly for us. Yeah. We, we, we love it and we love that people are out there listening. So uh, keep on... Um, Keeping on. Yeah, keep on keeping on. Keep on telling people about it. And if you're sitting next to the pool or on the beach this summer... Uh, stick in your AirPods and have a go and have a listen and, and keep on telling more of us, more of your mates about us. Absolutely. So until uh, until next time, hooroo. I've been everywhere. Because I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bear man. I've breathed them out and bear man. Hello and welcome back to the Around the Grounds. Let's get 1969 underway. Starting with, as usual, the VFA. Uh, we've had a long-standing dispute with the league in regards to transfer fees, uh, basically broken down from the culture law that the play that the league couldn't pay player transfer fees to uh, to obtain players. Uh, consequently, the association only wanted a transfer fee if the association, if an association club had lost a player. So that that's had a. Uh, the raw uh, the issues had arisen from. Uh, consequently, over the last two years, say from 67 to 69, uh, Terry Alexander, Kevin Sheedy and Peter Bedford were the only three players to transfer between competitions. And consequently, uh, the association had banned them for five years of any association games, which you'd think would have scared off a number of other uh, association players from making the leap to the league in November 68, the Australian National Football Council tried to intervene to attempt to mend the bridge between both, both competitions by mandating that the two competitions were required to recognise each other's clearances. And in April, yeah, clearances, in April 1969, the disagreements played out in the controversial case of Jeff Bryant. In April 1969, with the Bryant case ongoing, uh, the Association Board of Management agreed to drop the transfer fee rule, but it did not reinstate a clearance of repocracy agreement. The ANFC 
issued an ultimatum to the association, uh, stating that the clearance agreement uh, with the great uh, with the league must be reinstated. And the association had refused, and yet more players crossed without a clearance. As a result, the association was excluded of the team, uh, excluded of sending a team to the 1969 Interstate Carnival, which was held in Adelaide in June this year. And then finally, uh, expelled altogether from the ANFC in March 1970, uh, ending its 20-year affiliation. Uh, JJ Liston medalist was Persons Laurie Hill with 33 votes. Danny, Danny Long's Jim Miller was the leading goal kicker with 91 home and away goals and an additional 15 during finals. Lead ladder leaders, Preston has won back-to-back Divi 1 flags, second in Division 1, beating Danny Long by two goals. In Division 2, the Best and Fairest was now renamed the Jay Fields Medal after former Secretary John Field. The, uh, this year was won by former JJ Liston medalist Coburg's Jim Sullivan with 44 votes. Sunshine's George Allen has won the leading goal kicker award with 89 home and away goals and 10 in finals. And Williamstown's have beaten uh, Williamstown has beaten ladder leaders Sunshine to claim their first Div Two flag by 20 points and being welcomed back into Div One with uh, well, replacing Wooden Spooners Brunswick. Still in Victoria in the Vaffa, Coburg has been ormond by 11 points to claim uh, this year's flag. The Jane Woodrow medalist was Norman Beatty, Beatty and Coburg's R.K. McFarlane has won back-to-back leading goalkeeper awards with 70 goals. Now across the border to the Sandful, Sturt has claimed their ninth flag, beating ladder leaders Glenelg by 65 points. Uh, Glenelg's Fred Phyllis has cleaned up the awards this year. Um, firstly, winning the leading goalkeeper award with 137 goals and winning the McGarry medal with 18 votes. On a side note, we have a big name Richmond uh, Premiership player being welcome being welcome to uh, Medal. Uh, coming off the Richmond flag, Richmond legend Royce Hart played his one and only game for Glenelg in the Sandful Decider. Uh, he was based in SA for a national service training arrangement. Uh, he was paid a hefty two thousand dollars for the game, uh, and it was he, it was his it was his one and only game for Glenelg. But he didn't. But it didn't end too well. Uh, at the eight-minute mark of the first quarter, he was heavily tackled by two Sturt players, and consequently he was concussed. And there, and as there was no concussion rule back in the back in nineteen sixty-nine, um, he returned back to the he returned back to the game, and finished being one of Glenelg's best plays in the grand final loss with twenty-one kicks, a game-high ten marks, and kicking two goals. Now across to the Nullarbor in the Waffle. Subiaco's Alan Robinson Jr. has, a, has won his fifth Bernie Naylor medal, kicking 114 goals. Sandover Mellis was won by East Perth Mal Brown with 21 votes. West Perth has collected their 13th flag by pumping East Perth by 73 points. And West Perth's Bill Dempsey has collected the Simpson medal for best a field in the grand final. 
Now across to straight to the Tassie League. North Hobart has beaten Clarence by two goals, winning their 22nd flag. And in the top end in the 69-70 season of the NTFL, Darwin has won their 17th flag, beating St. Mary's by 13 points. And the Nichols medal was awarded to St. Mary's John Pepperill. Thank you and have a great day. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.